from the Greater Omaha Chamber in partnership with the Hyder College of Business at Creighton University. It's Lead Together, conversations to connect you and elevate all of us. A podcast to introduce you to successful leaders and inspire the leader within you. There's a certain point where you've got to say, um, what's more important, my job or doing the right thing? Thank you for joining us for episode five of Lead Together. I'm your host, Todd Darnold. Today's conversation is with David Brown, president and CEO of the Greater Omaha Chamber. Continue listening to learn more about David and to hear about a time when he had to make a decision he knew was right, but that he also knew could cost him his job. Who in your life has been a major influence? You know, I always go back to my father and, and you know, people probably expect you to do that. But I had the good fortune uh, really since I was about 12 years old, um, whenever I had a chance going to work with him. Mm-hmm. So he was always an entrepreneur in some sort, never high tech, always right. restaurant business or marina business or food and service business. And so um, he would take me along with him on the weekends. We'd work together in the summer times. Um, and I was amazing the lessons that I learned from him, hard work, um, work ethic, um, ethical business practices. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that's what it was at the time. Um, but, um, you know, dad was always one of those guys that said, if you're going to do the job, do it right yeah. and keep at it until it's right. Mm-hmm. And that hit that got instilled in me in a very, very early age, mostly because he wouldn't let me go away and, and, and go have fun until I got the job done right. And mm-hmm. so it was a lesson at the time I thought was maybe unreasonable. Right. Um, but in the end, it became the way we lived. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was a um, a very important lesson just to know you really had to work hard. And in the end, it became something you wanted to work hard. It became mm-hmm. a way you did things. Right. Um, he never made a decision that he said he couldn't live with. So that means he made some pretty difficult decisions. I and mean, sometimes it was about selling the business. Sometimes it was about hiring or firing people. Sometimes it was about who you did business with. Um, sometimes it was about um, deciding that you needed to go somewhere else and do a, a different job. Um, but he always thought that he was going to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And it was the right thing for him morally, the right thing for his family. And we had six kids. He sent us all through Catholic elementary and high school. Um, I have no idea where he found the money to do that because he never made a lot of money. Um, Um, But uh, he always, I think, made the choice that he thought was ethical and right. And he instilled that in all of us, too. Are there any moments that you've had in the course of your career where you've you've thought back to those lessons and said, this is where I'm going to be like, Dad? Yeah, I I kind of try and talk to all of our people um, that I've worked with over the years, particularly if I've been in a a management or leadership position, that you've got to have a moral compass. You've got to have a line that you just will not cross. And then know what's going to happen if you're forced to decide to make a decision. You're not going to cross that line. So what are the ramifications of that? Uh, And I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with people that I've hired or people that I've been um, coaching as Mm -hmm. as part of our management process that you got to know where your line is. And um, there there are a lot of circumstances where you say, yep, just not going to go there. Mm -hmm. Um, And whenever I have that moment, I think about my dad every single time. It's a dad moment. You know, it's one of those things you say, what would dad do in this situation? Mm -hmm. And I know exactly what he would do. He wouldn't cross the line. Great. So how do you define success? You've obviously been a very successful person. You've led major organizations that are being rewarded. They're growing, they're thriving. But how do you personally think about success? Well, it, it first starts with my family. Um, I'm blessed with a, a wife of 37 years and uh, two sons, both of whom I'm very proud of. And so, you know, we talk about this all the time at the chamber. I mean, we, we have 
a, a very specific notion of work-life balance. I mean, I believe that people come to work. They want, when they come to work, they they want to have something that they they are doing that's important. Mm-hmm. But they're not at work because work is the most important thing in their life. The most important thing in their life is what's at home yep. after they leave work. And uh, we want to make sure people are successful in their lives. And and then that's the the first. Um, way of me being suggesting I'm successful is, is my family doing well? Mm-hmm. Um, are they happy, healthy, wise? All those kinds of things that you Absolutely. want to happen. Not suggesting that there are not hurdles in everybody's life, but but that's the first sign of success is, is your family doing well? Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I think it comes down to people for me, um, people in my organization, and have I made an impact on people's lives outside of organization? Um, on the days that I am not particularly pleased with what I'm doing or not particularly pleased with an outcome, um, I know I can get in the car and drive around that can point at projects where we, that we've had a, a hand in. And I know we've made a difference in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, back in 09, when we were having some tough budget situations at the chamber, and we started wondering, you can just see people's eyes, what's going to happen? Is this the place we want to work? Mm-hmm. Um, I think our response to them was, you know, Today, just think about there's 20,000 more people out there with jobs um, that wouldn't have had them if it wasn't for the work that you did. Yeah. So if you ever wonder, are you doing something important, think about the impact you're having on somebody else. Right. So for me, that, that's what success looks like. We've we've done everything right, and guess what? We've got my family's happy, our people are happy, and the community is better because of our work. Yep. How much of that do you think you'd tie back to your father's influence? Oh, I, I, like I said, whenever something really good happens, I immediately think about him. <clears throat> you know, he, he wasn't a high-powered executive. He wasn't um, somebody you'd read about in the paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't um, volunteer in high-profile things. I mean, he was a little league coach. He did all those things that, that dads do. Mm-hmm. Um but he was just this this really great moral compass and um, the hardest working man I've ever met. And so you take those two things in and it applies to every single thing that I do. Mm-hmm. So what would you tell uh, emerging and current leaders uh, based on your experiences that they should be doing? What should the checklist for mentorship be? What should the checklist for development be? Well, first off, you got to find mentors who will help you. So I mean, every step of my career, the six or seven key jobs that I've had, um, people have not only taken a risk on me, um, but they've also stood up and said, we understand the risk. Let us help minimize that risk by teaching you things you need to know. Mm-hmm. Whether it was my first CEO job in, in Monroe, where literally I knew nothing about being a president of a nonprofit organization. And yet, but I knew how to do economic development. And so they said, we can teach you this stuff. Mm-hmm. You keep doing that stuff. And so they, they literally, they're bored. Each one of them had a different responsibility to mentor me along on financial statements, to fundraising, to nonprofit management, to um, uh, board um, relationships. I mean, it, it was it was a, a master's class in how to manage an organization while I was doing this gig. And they knew that they had to do that to make me successful. And everywhere along the path, I have found somebody who has been willing to mentor me in some way or another. Even when I got here, where you would think, but boy, he's he's got his final job. This is where he wants to be. Uh, there have been several people here in Omaha who have said, here's some things that you need to learn about this community or some people that I need to introduce you to. And let me, let me mentor you in that way. So the first development thing I try and tell potential leaders is you got to find somebody who will care enough about you to tell you the truth and will ultimately engage you in the development that they think you're going to need to be successful. One of the things we really want to get at uh, with this podcast is this idea that we all, uh, we believe we all ought to be leading both with our head and our heart. Mm-hmm. That great leaders are, are not just purely intellectual. Mm-hmm. It isn't just a numbers game. Right. So, you know, could you tell us a story about a time when you led with both your head and your heart? Sure. 
Um, you know, I think, frankly, um, knowledge, the, the head part, um, you, you develop early on and then you gain, you gain experience and you, you get that knowledge. It's almost by osmosis. And if you're doing something, you're going to learn more and more about it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you can be more focused about knowledge. You can be re- a lot of, I, I read voraciously and um, talk to people all the time and try and learn. Um, but I think, frankly, really good leadership is, is more about the heart than it is about the head. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to know, um, you know what you're all about. You've got to know where you're headed. And uh, sometimes you've got to be able to say, well, the right thing for us to do is this. So how do I then use what knowledge I have to figure out a way to fit that into our agenda? <clears throat> when I was in South Carolina back in uh, 1996, uh, the Olympics were coming to Atlanta. Yeah. And uh, there was a group of folks who didn't like the, the Olympic Committee much, and they were trying to um, force them to change their policy on on gays and lesbians in the Olympics. <clears throat> the Olympics have said, we're all in. We don't care. Um, there were some folks that didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And so they went around to counties around along the path of the torch run that comes along with the Olympics and tried to get all those counties to pass an anti-gay resolution, which would embarrass the Olympic Committee. The Olympic Committee responded by saying anybody that passes one of those resolutions, we're just not going to run the torch through that community. Well, unfortunately, there were only two or three counties that actually passed that resolution. And one of the counties was the one that I was operating in. And we had planned this huge event for the torch. It was going to stay the night in in our town. And we had a big festival around it. Mm -hmm. Um, We had the normal folks lined up to run the torch. Everybody was excited. And then the Olympic Committee said, well, we're not going to run it through your county because your county passed this resolution. Mm -hmm. So we had a couple of choices to make. We we could say, well, shucks, we don't like it and all that kind of stuff. But we chose instead to say, no, the county's wrong on this one. Now, this was not a popular position for us to take, but it was the right position Mm -hmm. for us to take. My heart said it was the right thing to do. My brain had to figure out how to make it work. Right. In the end, the city council passed a, a resolution that said everybody's welcome in our community. And so we convinced the Olympic Committee to uh, do something they'd never done before. And that is when the torch got to the, the county line, we put we shrouded the torch and put it in a van mm-hmm. and then drove it to the city limits. Wow. And when it got to the city limits, we unshrouded it uh-huh. and had everybody do the torch run. We had our celebration. And then the next morning, they took it to the city limits for the torch run and put it in the van, took it outside the county, continued the torch run. Mm-hmm. That was... Um, it was great. It was a perfect answer for us. It was a lousy answer for politics. And the politicians hated us for doing mm-hmm. it. But it was the right thing for us to do. Mm-hmm. And, and it worked. Um, I, I would say that it cost us a lot of, of political clout. It cost us some, some funding from government organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, it even cost us some members. But it gained us some members, too. Yeah. And so in the end, I think doing the right thing mattered. Um, it was really it had its beginnings here. It didn't have its beginnings here. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, I could, I could use the knowledge of how to negotiate and make things happen um, to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. So once you'd made that decision that that's the, the route you wanted to go, mm-hmm. how did you convince the Olympic Committee to go with that very unique plan? And then how did you deal with the aftermath in the community in a way that you're able to move forward as united as yeah. possible. Well, a lot of the, the work with the Olympic Committee literally was just negotiating, just saying, look, we, you, this doesn't represent who we are. Mm-hmm. And we had to convince them that that was the case. It wasn't just me. We brought lots of our leaders to the table and ultimately negotiated that that move with them to say this is a important thing for our community. We want to want to show that this is they don't represent who we are. Um, 
So it, it wasn't as much of, we didn't have to do, we have to pay him anything. We just said, let's figure out a solution because not everybody should suffer because of a decision of nine people who yeah. um, had a split vote on this issue. Um, the, the ramifications afterward, you know, we had to deal with those. We had to deal with the folks that were writing letters, the editor, you know, calling us every name in the book. We had to deal with maybe friends and neighbors of our staff and our, mm -hmm. our board that weren't pleased with what we had said. Um, we had to deal with, with members who literally just dropped their membership because they, they felt that we had taken an issue, a position on an issue that they didn't feel was, was appropriate. Um, but on the other hand, there were those moments when somebody walked into your office and plapped down a membership check and said, I'm joining you because you took this position. Mm -hmm. That sort of I made mean, for every one of those, it, it was worth 100 complaints. Yeah. Um, uh, and in the end, it, it worked out for us. I, I think it, it gave us a, a license to move into other issues that were important to the community that might not normally be construed as a business issue. Mm -hmm. So what prepared you to make those decisions? What prepared you to have that negotiation? What prepared you to stand up with that moral courage? There's a certain point where you've got to say, um, what's more important, my job or doing the right thing? Because there was every opportunity I could have gotten fired for doing mm -hmm. that. Uh, there were, I didn't have an overwhelming majority on our board that was willing to have us do that. Although we did have enough of them to be able to say, okay, David, you have our blessing. Mm -hmm. But I could easily have lost my job by leading this. And there were other causes along the way that clearly could have happened. So first you got to have, a, I had to have a conversation with my, my spouse. who so I said, okay, here, here's the chance of what's going to happen here. I can, we can do the right thing here and move do all the negotiating that we know how to do and do all the volunteer uh, management that we know how to do and all the leading that we know how to do. Um, and it could still end up that I could lose my job. And her response was, so we get another one. Mm hmm. I mean, I mean, how many other places in the country want somebody that can do what you do? I said, well, lots of them. She said, well, then don't worry about that. That'll work itself out. What wouldn't work itself out is if you never forgave yourself for doing the wrong thing. So once I had her blessing, I'm like, well, let's just go forward. And, and that has really taken place in every single major issue that, I've, that an organization that I've worked with has had to deal with. I've led the charge. You know, the decision is, is, is your job more important than doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. And we've... We, we've never felt that it was. So what do you wish you knew when you first started gaining that momentum that you know now? Or, you know, when you first started leading folks, <coughs> leading organizations, you know, what would you tell that, that version of yourself? Well, my wife coins the phrase, and it's been used elsewhere, that I am often wrong but never in doubt. <laughs> <clears throat> and I, I wondered if I knew back then how frequently I would make mistakes mm -hmm. um, that I now hopefully I, I don't make. Um, maybe I would have been able to do an even better job than, than I did. Thank you so much for your time today, David. Uh, really compelling stuff. I'm proud to be a part of this conversation. So thank you for joining us and uh, all you're doing for the city. Oh, thanks. You know, it, it, it's always fun to talk about yourself, but difficult to talk about yourself. And so I hope if nothing else, I portrayed the fact that it's not really about the individual leader. It's how they they work with other people to cause things to happen. I mean, there's a role for us to play, but but in the end, it is about how we work with everybody else. And mm -hmm. we talk about the chamber all the time, accomplishing more together. And that's really what this whole leadership journey has been about, I think. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to Lead Together. Leave a review and tell your friends. We leave you with a message from David Brown, a message that seems simple, but is quite complex. There are some times when you just got to do the right thing. <clears throat> realizing that you're going to make some people angry and some people are just euphoric. 
Thanks to all of you for listening, and thank you to the Greater Omaha Chamber and the Hyder College of Business at Creighton University for supporting this podcast. Remember, we don't coast, we lead together. This podcast was produced by Liz Kerrigan with help from Linda Schaefer, Jill Bruckner, and Peter Burnell. I'm your host, Todd Darnold, and we look forward to our next conversation.